This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We will start out with JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, Hamas releases two American hostages from Gaza by Ron Campeas. Hamas has released two American hostages, a mother and a daughter, to whom it was, uh, whom it was holding in the Gaza Strip. The release was confirmed by an organization dedicated to the rescue of more than 200 hostages the terrorist group captured in its October 2nd invasion. The family's headquarters congratulates the release of hostages from Hamas captivity. The hostages and missing families forum said in a message it distributed to reporters on WhatsApp. The continued holding of hostages is a war crime. Hundreds of families await the assistance of leaders of Arab states after Hamas's actions shocked the entire world. Foreign reports named the women as Natalie and Judith Renan of Evanston, Illinois. Media reports said the two were a mother and a daughter who were released to the Red Cross. A Red Cross spokeswoman did not immediately return a request for comment. A spokeswoman for the Families Forum Liat Bell Summer confirmed to JTA that the two hostages are American, but said she could not provide further details at the request of the families. A Hamas spokesman told reporters on a Telegram channel that it had released two American citizens, a mother and her daughter, for humanitarian reasons, and to prove to the American people in the world that the claims made by Biden and his fascist administration are false and baseless. President Joe Biden has backed Israel in its war against Hamas since the terrorist group invaded Israel, killing 1,400 people, most of them civilian, wounding thousands and kidnapping more than 200. Israel declared war on Hamas following the invasion. An inflection point in history, Biden says, assisting Israel and Ukraine is necessary to preserve democracy. By Ron Campeas. Washington. President Joe Biden delivered a rare Oval Office address asking Americans to back assistance to Israel and Ukraine in the name of preserving democracy across the globe. We're facing an inflection point in history, Biden said Thursday in the roughly 15-minute address delivered just hours after he returned from a lightning visit to Israel. He landed in Tel Aviv on Wednesday to show his support as the country wages war on Hamas, the terror group that invaded Israel on October 7th, killing four, uh, 1,400, wounding thousands, and taking more than 200 hostage. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, Biden said, referring to the Russian president who launched an invasion of Ukraine last year. But they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate neighboring democracies. Hamas's purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people, he said. Biden said he would ask Congress Friday for more defense assistance for Israel and Ukraine. He said he wanted Israel to sharpen its qualitative military edge to deter Iran and others from joining Hamas in the war it launched from the Gaza Strip. He also wants to provide funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Congress has been stalled for weeks as the Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives has been unable to elect a speaker, 
without whom appropriations are impossible. Biden did not mention numbers, but reports have said he is set to ask for $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. Throughout the speech, Biden cast his plea for support as a vital American interest. When terrorists don't pay the price for their terror, when dictators don't pay the price for their aggression, they keep going, he said. Biden described his meetings with Israelis who had survived the October 7th invasion and added that he urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to obey the laws of war. He noted his efforts to get humanitarian assistance into the Gaza Strip. Israel has launched counterattacks from the air and with artillery that have killed more than 3,700 Palestinians and is readying for a ground invasion of Gaza. Biden also spoke of the threat of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the United States now that the war is underway, mourning the murder of a Palestinian-American boy in a Chicago suburb. The October 7th terror attacks have triggered deep scars and terrible memories in the Jewish community, Biden said. Today, Jewish families are worried about being targeted in school, wearing symbols of their faith, walking down the street, or going about their daily lives. And next from JTA, from grief to rage, American Jews are struggling with how to feel about the conflict in Israel by Andrew Lappin. Not knowing what else to do this week, Julia Starakovsky posted some pictures of herself in Israel on social media. Like other American Jews, Starakovsky, a 25-year-old psychology doctoral student at Northwestern University, was shocked and horrified by the devastation wrought by Hamas's October 7th invasion of Israel. She's planning to get married in Israel next fall and has close friends who moved to Israel. Yet she still thought to herself, what does this have to do with me? It was only when she saw a prompt on Instagram that called for young Jews to share photos of themselves in Israel for solidarity that Starkovsky felt she had permission to make it in some small way about her. She shared photos of herself with her friends and fiancé in Israel, hoping to provide a more human face to the ongoing tragedy. She didn't know at the time that the prompt had been a coordinated effort by Birthright Israel to promote pro-Israel sentiment on social media amid concerns about criticism stemming from Israel's military response in Gaza. One Israel-based Birthright marketing executive, Noah Bauer, described the social media push to JTA as a publicity campaign that Israel would need in the coming days and weeks when there's probably going to be more casualties. Bauer added, referring to Birthright's American alumni, I think that they owe us as Jews and as human beings to give their thoughts. Yet Starkovsky, a Birthright alum, didn't see her support as transactional. She's also trying to hold space in her heart for other forms of grief. You can support Israel. You can also support Palestinian children. The two are not exclusive of one another, she said. I don't think I've been hesitant in posting about Israel, but I'm also making sure that I recognize the other innocent civilian lives that are lost in this whole entire war. Within a deeply polarized discourse about Israel among American Jews, Starakovsky joins many in the relatively quiet middle seared by grief, worried about what comes next, and not quite sure how to reconcile the two. Prominent Jewish voices occupied the headlines this week, calling on one side for Gaza to be flattened into a parking lot, 
Representative Max Miller, the Jewish Republican from Ohio, and and on the other side for a total ceasefire, the left-wing group's Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now, which staged several mass protests, including at the U.S. Capitol. But between those polls lies many more people in Starakovsky's shoes, just trying to make sense of a moment that seems to defy it, and potentially more difficult moments on the horizon. It's terrible that Israelis are being killed. It's also terrible that civilian Palestinians are being killed, said Lisa Young, a self-described conservative Jew who spoke to JTA at a Chabad Lubavitch pro-Israel event in New York City. Young said she has friends who used to live in Gush Katif, Israeli settlements in Gaza that were evacuated along with all of Israel's troops in 2005. Unfortunately, Israel has to defend itself, she said. It's a small country. They only want peace. They don't want to attack and kill innocent lives, but they don't have a choice but to respond to what's happening amongst their people. The wrestling took center stage last Shabbat as congregations across the country were packed with Jews bucking social media rumors of a day of jihad and seeking spiritual guidance for their long road ahead. Rabbis are expected to continue addressing the crisis this weekend from their pulpits. Some liberal rabbis spoke of the need for a looming, difficult but necessary war to safeguard the Jewish state, were ceded their sermon times to Israelis who made similar points. From my experience, there are no winners at war. All sides are losers, said Israeli-American Josh Berkowitz, a former Israeli soldier and pro-Israel activist in a speech to Temple Israel in West Bloomfield, Michigan, the largest reformed congregation in the country. But this time, the war is about the very existence of the Jewish homeland, Israel. We have to win. There is no alternative. Others pressed their congregants to understand Israel's motivations for military action, while also maintaining empathy for the human toll. Rabbi Angela Buchdahl of New York City's Central Synagogue, a reformed congregation, called Israel's campaign against Hamas a just and moral war one we didn't choose but now can't avoid. She also urged her congregation to not equate Hamas with the Palestinian people and to mourn the death of all innocent lives. Some have gone further. Killing thousands of Palestinian civilians will not bring back the Israeli civilians who are so bitterly and excruciatingly mourned, Congregation Beth Elohim's Rabbi Rachel Timoner said during her sermon in Brooklyn last week. As some American Jews cite feelings of personal connection to the Hamas attacks as justification for supporting Israel's actions, others who have direct connections to them are calling for the opposite. Cleo Steima's grandmother, Ditsa Hyman, a widow of a Holocaust survivor, was seen in a video being taken hostage by the terror group, yet Steima's family has been advocating against further Israeli military action in the media. I cannot and will not stand with violence, let alone when it is done in my family's and others' names, Steima told JTA by email. In addition, she said her family is concerned that a lack of intelligence around the hostage's location and condition means their health and safety could be jeopardized by Israel's military incursion. Steima urged American Jews not to allow their love for Jews or Israel to be poisoned by terror, not let Islamophobia or anti-Palestinian sentiments mar their compassion for human beings. 
Other progressive American Jews feel horrified simultaneously by the Hamas massacre, responses from the left blaming Israel for the crisis, and Israel's campaign in Gaza. Naomi Levison, 27, a social worker in Colorado who is active with a progressive Jewish collective called Denver Doikite, is also still close with what she describes as the very Zionist community in Atlanta, where she grew up and attended Jewish day school and summer camp. Her social media feed, she estimates, is 80% from her Atlanta and Young Judea Israel gap year communities, and she's distressed by what she sees there. It's been really devastating, and I feel a lot of complex emotions, she told JTA. I have a lot of loved ones in Israel. I lived in Israel, so I'm grieving what happened last Saturday. Yet pushes from Jews and Jewish organizations like Birthright to keep supporting Israel as a means of managing such grief are falling flat for her. It feels as though our grief is being weaponized, she said. I'm also at the same time horrified how Israel is, I want to say, retaliating, I guess, and how a lot of my Jewish community is defending these actions and this violence. She specifically cited Israel's decision early on to cut off food, electricity, fuel, and water to Gaza, which she said is clearly targeting civilians. I feel really isolated from within the Jewish community, she said, and isolated from people who aren't in the Jewish community who don't understand the grief we're feeling. And here's a roundup from JTA. What's happening in Israel's war against Hamas and Gaza? The latest and what could come next explained by Ben Sales. Shortly after Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th, killing 1,400, wounding thousands and taking 200 captive, Israel declared war and vowed to defeat the terror group. Since then, Israel has conducted punishing airstrikes in Gaza, killing thousands and preparing for a ground invasion, as it is still counting bodies and learning of atrocities from Hamas's incursion. It is also exchanging fire with Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror group, and cracking down in the West Bank. The international response has also changed. Alongside widespread horror at Hamas's mass murder, Israel and its supporters are calling for a return of the hostages while its critics are pushing for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza. President Joe Biden has staunchly backed Israel, traveling to the country this week and delivering an Oval Office address calling for aid, a question on which Americans appear split. We are fighting for our home, and it will take a long time, Benny Gantz, a former defense minister and Israeli military chief, who recently joined the government, said earlier this week. The war in the South and, if needed, also in the North or anywhere else will take months, and the rebuilding will take years, and only when that is completed will we win. Here's what's happening in Israel's war with Hamas and Gaza, and what might happen next. What is happening right now in Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza? In the days following Hamas's invasion, Israel's leaders made clear that their goal would be to defeat and dismantle the terror group. Since October 7th, Israel has been bombing Gaza from the air, destroying Hamas positions and senior commanders, and exacting a heavy death toll. Hamas is an Islamist organization that is designated as a terror group by the United States and the European Union, and is dedicated to Israel's destruction. It is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood and has controlled Gaza for more than 15 years. Israel has killed at least 1,500 Hamas terrorists who invaded the country and, as of Friday, was still fighting Gazans in Israel. 
According to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry, more than 4,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since the war began, and footage has shown ruins of whole neighborhoods in the coastal territory. Hamas and the other terror groups have continued barraging Israel with rockets, and some of the casualties in Gaza have been due to failed rocket launches by those groups. That includes, according to the United States and Israel, a Palestinian rocket that struck a Gaza hospital earlier this week. Hamas has claimed that Israel is responsible for that blast. Israel has been preparing for a large-scale invasion of the Gaza Strip and has called up more than 300,000 military reservists. Last week, it also called on residents of the north half of the Gaza Strip, more than one million people, to evacuate to the territory's southern half. Hundreds of thousands have reportedly evacuated, though Hamas told residents to stay put. We've moved to attack, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said October 12th. I say now to everyone, we will wipe out this thing called Hamas. We will wipe it off the earth. This thing won't continue to exist. What could happen next? How exactly Israel could defeat Hamas and what happens afterward remains unclear. Israel has fought several rounds of conflict with the Gaza terror group over the past 15 years, but none that promises to be this extensive. The most major Israel-Hamas war up to this point took place in 2014, but in some measures it already pales in comparison. More than 2,100 Palestinians and 70 Israelis were killed in that conflict, numbers that have already been dwarfed since October 7th. And while that war lasted 50 days, a former senior Israel Defense Forces official estimated that this one could take six to eight months. On Friday, Gallant said Israel's war in Hamas would unfold in three stages. A campaign from the air and on the ground, a lower-intensity campaign that will aim to eliminate pockets of resistance, and the establishment of a new Palestinian governing entity in Gaza that would remove Israel's responsibility for running the territory. The operation will reportedly focus on the Hamas stronghold of Gaza City. But who would that be? Right now, no one has the answer. Israel could attempt to install the Palestinian Authority, which governs Palestinian areas of the West Bank in Gaza, but the PA was expelled from the territory in 2007 after a brief civil war with Hamas. On Friday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a handoff to the PA. All talk of decisions to hand over the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority or any other party is a lie, he said. Gaza is also home to other terror groups, the largest of which is Islamic Jihad, which also fires rockets at Israel. When Israel's ground invasion will begin is also, as of now, an open question. On October 19th, Gallant said it would come soon. But former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who is currently out of political office, urged patience in a post on social media saying that it was safer right now for Israel's air force to, cr force to crush, crush, crush Hamas. Could there be a regional war? Israeli officials appear to be most anxious about a second front opening on Israel's northern border, where the major Lebanese terror group Hezbollah has shot missiles at Israel and Israel has fired back. Israel fought a month-long war in 2006 with Hezbollah that, until this month, was its bloodiest in decades. 
Hamas and Hezbollah are both funded by Iran, a chief Israeli adversary that warned earlier this week that other multiple fronts will open, and this is inevitable if Israeli strikes continue. On Thursday, the United States intercepted three missiles heading toward Israel that were launched by an Iranian proxy in Yemen. The action was extraordinary in two ways. Israel has not considered the Iranian allies in Yemen to be an immediate threat and has rarely relied on the American military to defend against attacks aimed at its territory. The United States has moved forces to the region as a warning to regional adversaries of Israel not to get involved in the fight. Facing the prospect of escalating fighting, Israel has evacuated tens of thousands of residents on its southern and northern borders. Most of the city of Sterot, with a population of 30,000, has been evacuated, and on Friday the northern town of Kiryat Shemona, which has 20,000 residents, was evacuated. Israel is also cracking down on Palestinians in the West Bank. In overnight raids on Friday, the IDF arrested dozens of Hamas operatives, including the group's spokesman. Israel has conducted hundreds of arrests in the West Bank since October 7th, and 70 Palestinians have been killed, according to Palestinian groups. That toll includes 13 Palestinians and one Israeli who were killed in clashes in the Nur Shams refugee camp Thursday. The IDF is also investigating a unit that, according to footage, abused Palestinians and left-wing activists in the West Bank. According to Haaretz, a group of soldiers and settlers beat, stripped, and burned cigarettes on the Palestinians, leading to the dismissal of an officer. How is the United States involved? Biden has spoken out multiple times in support of Israel since October 7th and traveled there on October 18th, a rare if not unprecedented trip by a U.S. president to a war theater where American troops are not fighting. He also called for humanitarian aid to Palestinians and for Israel to obey the laws of war. The vast majority of Congress also supports Israel's war effort, though the absence of a Speaker of the House means that its members can't approve an aid package. On Thursday night, Biden delivered a rare Oval Office address in which he made the, ch the case that aid to Israel's and Ukraine's war efforts was vital for protecting American interests across the globe. On Friday, he made his formal aid request more than $100 billion in total across the globe, including more than $14 million for Israel to bolster its military supplies, including its Iron Dome missile defense system. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, Biden said in his address, referring to the Russian president who launched an invasion of Ukraine last year. But they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate neighboring democracies. Pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian rallies have taken place across the country, and a recent poll by CBS and YouGov shows that Americans at large support Israel. More than 50% of Americans sympathize with Israel a lot, compared to 28% with the Palestinians. When it comes to aiding Israel with weaponry, though, opinions are mixed. On the one hand, most Americans approve of Biden's support for Israel or say he should be more supportive, but... On the other hand, only 48% said the United States should send weapons or supplies to Israel. What's happening with the hostages? Hamas took more than 200 hostages during its invasion of Israel, including citizens of the United States and countries across the globe. Israel confirmed that approximately 30 of the hostages are children 
and up to 20 are elderly. More than a dozen are American citizens. Families of the hostages have embarked on a global campaign rife with symbolism to keep the world's eyes on their captured family members. They have met with world leaders, including Biden and Netanyahu. They have enlisted celebrities such as Gal Gadot and Helen Mirren to advocate for their loved ones' release. They have set up empty Shabbat dinner tables in public spaces worldwide, and they have wallpapered cities around the world with posters bearing the hostages' photos and names. World leaders, including United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, have called for the hostages' immediate release. Earlier this week, Hamas released a video of one of the hostages, and on Friday it freed two American hostages, a mother and daughter reportedly from the Chicago area. Israel has also led military, small military incursions into Gaza to recover hostages, though none has yet been rescued alive. This is not the first time Hamas has taken hostages. In 2006, it captured Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit, who was exchanged for 1,000 Palestinian prisoners five years later this month. It is currently holding two Israelis who entered Gaza before this year, as well as the bodies of two soldiers killed in the 2014 war. What is happening with the Palestinians and humanitarian aid? Israel has blockaded Gaza since Hamas took control of the territory more than 15 years ago. And days after Hamas's invasion, Israel initiated a complete siege of Gaza. Israel did not let food, water, electricity, or fuel into the territory. Since then, the humanitarian situation in the territory has become increasingly dire, with reports of residents drinking salty water and medical care scarce and dwindling. The terrorists traveled to the Rafah border crossing on Gaza's border with Egypt in support of humanitarian aid, and while in Israel, Biden negotiated a deal for aid to travel into Gaza via that border crossing. It appears, however, that the aid hasn't yet entered the territory. On Friday, trucks of aid were seen sitting on the Egyptian side of the border, an Egyptian aid worker told CNN. In addition, Israel has weighed creating safe zones for Palestinian civilians in the southern Gaza Strip, where they would receive protection from the war, though at this stage Israel is conducting airstrikes throughout the territory. How is the war changing Israel's politics? Hamas's attack, the most lethal day for Jews since the Holocaust, appears to have completely taken Israel's right-wing government by surprise, and in recent days, several military and intelligence officials and government ministers have apologized or taken responsibility for failing to prevent the massacre. We are responsible. I, as a member of the government, am responsible, Education Minister Yoav Kitsch said. We are dealing with nonsense. Days after the invasion, Netanyahu brought Gantz's centrist National Unity Party into the government to form an emergency coalition to prosecute the war. Gantz, Gallant, and Netanyahu now form a three-person war cabinet that is in charge of the campaign. All other government legislation, including Netanyahu's controversial push to weaken the judiciary, have been shelved for now. But Netanyahu has yet to publicly take responsibility, something 80% of Israelis want him to do. 
And next from JTA, Hamas killed her mother and niece. Her children are hostages in Gaza. By Deborah Danan. Tel Aviv. Hadass Calderon flung a printed picture of her mother, Carmela Dan, an American Israeli who was reported kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, to the floor. She's dead. There's nothing I can do about her anymore. I don't even have a minute to think about mourning, Calderon told JTA. But I can save the living. I can fight to save my children. Calderon's comments came as she participated in a press conference in Tel Aviv, organized as part of a sweeping, sustained effort to draw local and global attention to the more than 200 Israeli captives now held in Gaza. Thursday's event focused on just one subset of the group, children. There had been no estimate of how many of the captives are children until Thursday when Israel said the number was at least 30. Videos shared by Hamas and pictures shared by their relatives have seared the faces of several into the international consciousness. One of the children to gain widespread attention is Calderon's 12-year-old niece, Noya Dan, who had slept over at Carmela's home on kibbutz near Oz the night of the attack. A quarter of the kibbutz's population is now dead or missing. Her mother and sister are among the survivors. A picture of Noya dressed as Harry Potter circulated widely on social media, even drawing amplification from the character's creator, J.K. Rowling, after Israel asked the British author to publicize her disappearance. On Wednesday, Hadass Calderon celebrated her mother's 80th birthday in her absence. She said the gathering was full of hope that Carmela would soon be released. The following day, at 10 p.m., she received a phone call from the Army telling her that Carmela's and Noya's bodies had been identified. She said she still does not know the circumstances surrounding their death, including on what side of the border they were killed. She wonders whether Noya's autism might have played a role. We don't know what happened. Maybe Carmela couldn't walk with her anymore, so they killed her, Calderon said, which makes us so worried for the others. The others include Calderon's own children, 16-year-old Sahar and 12-year-old son Eretz, who were also on the kibbutz that night with their father. I can hear every night my son screaming to me, Mom, save me, she cried. She said the army told her that they are likely in Khan Yunis, a southern Gaza city just six miles from near Oz, with the Israeli army preparing for what it says could be an extended ground invasion of Gaza. She knows her family is at risk. Stop immediately any military action until the hostages are released, she said, and then make the war. You can't make a war at the expense of children and babies. Some reports have emerged of back-channel negotiations around freeing the hostages, but Calderon joins other families of captives in believing that Israel should be doing more. She assailed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for saying that bringing back the hostages was part of the goals of Operation Iron Sword, the army's name for the war. It's not part of the goal, she said. It's the only goal. Yifat Zaylor told JTA that hearing Calderon become so impassioned made her believe 
she should be doing more to get her family's message across. Zeller is advocating for her niece and nephew, Ariel and Kafir Bibas, and their family members. Ariel, four, and Kafir, ten months, were taken with their mother, Shiri, Zeller's cousin. Their father, Yarden, and Shiri's parents, Yossi and Margit Silverman. Shiri, Ariel, and Kafir became some of the earliest faces of the hostage crisis, historic in its scope, after footage of them aired on Palestinian news and circulated online within hours of the attack. Shiri can be seen crying while carrying Kafir. All are Argentinian citizens. The family received a picture of Yarden being driven on a Hamas motorcycle with an obvious severe head wound and have also advertised that Margit has advanced Parkinson's disease and needs medication. I can feel the Calderon mother's pain and I think maybe I'm not fighting as much or being militant, Zeller said, because I think my heart is too broken, you know? She added, I'm trying to speak about them in the present tense. I'm fighting the natural instinct to say they lived, they used to, but I know they will come back. They were kidnapped alive, and they'll come back. Zeller, too, said she was concerned that a military operation could put her relatives at risk, though she said she hadn't come up with an alternative. I'm not a politician, so I don't have the right answer, she said. I just want no casualties. Someone needs to intervene to mediate this differently, and Hamas needs to be taken down. Calderon said she would advocate incessantly until her family is returned, calling on not just Israeli authorities to rescue them, but also on the United States, which is trying to broker the situation. Qatar, which reportedly has discussed the hostages with Hamas, and more. I'm even asking Hamas, at this moment you have the opportunity to show that you still have humanity, she said during the press conference. I want to believe that Hamas are taking care of them like they would their own children, she said. Exactly how much impact the press conference and the other components of the campaign, including kidnap posters, are being put up around the world could have remains unclear. But Calderon said she would not relent until her children were home. The whole world has to scream, she said. Scream until the skies open. Bring our children home. They're not soldiers. They've been picked up in their pajamas from their beds. Next from JTA Varieties, star-studded Hollywood summit on anti-Semitism takes a turn amid war in Israel by Jacob Gervis. West Hollywood, California. When he heard that Hamas had called for a global day of protest last week to accompany its deadly attack on Israel, Alex Edelman's mind turned naturally to jokes. Riffing on the traditional Hebrew holiday greeting Chag Sameach, the Jewish comedian wondered aloud to a packed room of Hollywood industry members and Jewish leaders, Do you say Rage Sameach? Moments later, Edelman struck a more somber tone about the violence in Israel, which his brother A.J. Edelman had represented in the Olympics. For me, Israel is a sort of home, Edelman said, tearing up on stage. Tearing up on stage, rather. Sorry. The Edelman, whose one-man Broadway show about his encounter with white supremacists made him a star last year, was speaking at Variety Magazine's star-studded summit on anti-Semitism in Hollywood. 
Edelman told JTA that he chose to be part of the event because I wanted to be with other Jews and without sounding canned with non-Jewish allies who were interested in wrestling with a more nuanced understanding of anti-Semitism. Although the summit was planned months before Hamas's attack on October 7th, it was dominated by what is going on in Israel and Gaza. Edelman's two comments about Israel were indicative of the tenor of the day-long invite-only event. It flip-flopped between seriousness and humor as, attempt, as speakers attempted to process the news while simultaneously sticking to a pre-planned event schedule. Put on in partnership with several Jewish organizations, the summit featured a series of panel conversations with Jewish A-list stars, including Edelman, Juliana Margolis, Tiffany Haydish, Mark Maron, Josh Molina, and Josh Peck, plus remarks from leaders of Jewish groups such as the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee, and the USC Shoah Foundation. A previously planned keynote address by SAG after President Fran Drescher was scrapped due to developments in the Actors, uh, Actors Union's strike negotiations. The event covered a number of topics related to anti-Semitism and entertainment. Representation, social media, comedy, the history of Jews in Hollywood, and others. The original event agenda included only one panel about Israel, but much of the day's conversations revolved around the war. Several speakers echoed the sentiment that the violence in Israel had only made the summit more important and timely because of the online conversation and wave of anti-Semitic incidents around the world tied to people's responses to the war. The program began with a prayer for peace and with the message shared by Variety's chief production officer, Claudia Eller, and others throughout the afternoon, that the magazine stands in solidarity with Israel. CNN commenter Van Jones said he had attended because of the current pain of many in the Jewish community. People are hurting, he told JTA. I know, as a black person, we look to see who understands our pain. This is a group of people who is grieving, and nobody should grieve alone. During one particularly poignant moment during the talk that was specifically intended to focus on Israel, Israeli actress Swell Ariel Orr shared that seven of her childhood friends had been killed. Orr, the star of Netflix, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, moved to the United States two weeks ago, right before Hamas's attack, and said she feels a degree of guilt that she's not in her home country. The panel, titled Israel in the Entertainment Industry, focused on the idea that Hollywood ought to create more content that shares the real-life everyday stories of Israel and Israeli culture. The Tony-winning play The Band's Visit, which was also adapted into a film, was given as an example of such a story. During an earlier panel, producer Moti Lashem, whose production company made the 2021 HBO film The Survivor, commended U.S. President Joe Biden for his administration's response to the war, eliciting a full round of applause from the audience. Some panels alluded to other trends that had inspired the summit in the first place, such as the rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States and recent high-profile scandals like the ones surrounding Yee, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. We're very proud to be able to do this, Variety CEO Michelle Sabrino Stearns told JTA. She pointed out that her magazine has also published a special section of 28 articles on anti-Semitism, penned by Jewish influencers, celebrities, and others, some of whom participated in the summit. 
In the first celebrity conversation of the day, award-winning actor Juliana Margolis said it is shocking how few members of her industry have spoken out against anti-Semitism. The last thing I thought in my life is that I would be the one actress speaking up for Jews, she told Eller during their chat. But I'm proud to be here, and I hope to inspire other people to speak up. Margolis shared her personal Jewish story, talking, uh, talked about her efforts to expand Holocaust education in New York City public schools, and gave her take on the debates over Jewish representation in Hollywood. The Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning actor said she came to my Judaism quite late in life. She said she is raising her son Jewish and enjoys celebrating Shabbat every week. It's about being together, she said, and that's what I love about Judaism. It's about community. When it comes to the debate on Jewface, whether non-Jews should play Jewish characters on screen, Margoli said it's a slippery slope. She added that while she would never play a character of a different race, she said actors should be allowed to act. On the other hand, Margolis also advocated for more casual depictions of Jewishness on screen, characters who happen to be Jewish, whether or not that identity is relevant to the plot. She recalled that the costume department for the Apple TV Plus hit The Morning Show had given her a cross necklace to wear for her character, Laura Peterson. Margolis said she didn't think much of it at first since her character's faith was not prominent in the show, but as she returned for a second season, Margolis said her mentality changed. What if Laura Peterson was wearing a Star of David or a Chai, she said, suggesting that subtle Christianity shouldn't always be the default. On one panel about comedy, which featured perhaps the most famous speakers of the day, Edelman, Ike Barinholtz, Maron, and Haydish discussed the role of comedy as a response to tragedy. Maron, who has infused Jewishness and jokes about anti-Semitism into much of his comedy over a decades-long stand-up and TV career, said his father still warns him to be careful when he's touring, especially because of how vocally Jewish he is in his stand-up. Haydish shared her experience discovering her Jewish heritage and noted the importance of recognizing the various different ethnicities Jewish people can represent. I thought it was important to be here so that the narrative can be heard that we do care, that we are sticking together, that comedy is important for the soul and can heal, she told JTA after the panel. I do think Jews are able to find comedy in horrible things, in horrible moments, said Baron Holtz, who has starred in The Mindy Project and more recently in History of the World Part 2. And I don't think we're there yet with Israel. I don't know if we ever will be. Next from JTA, Joe Biden wins over new fans after standing by Israel in its war with Hamas by Ron Campeas, Washington. Fred Zeidman is a longtime Republican Jewish committee leader who has been deeply critical of Joe Biden. He is backing Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the United Nations, in her bid to unseat him. So it was uncharacteristic when he praised the speech Biden gave before flying to Israel this week. I said I'm not going to say one thing bad about this guy. As I'd been told JTA, I think this is probably the most genuine, impassioned speech I have ever heard from a sitting American president. Zeidman was far from the only right-wing Jew to be won over by Biden during the last two weeks, as the president has delivered unqualified support for Israel's war against Hamas, launched in response to the terror group's deadly invasion on October 7th. 
While I have been and remain deeply critical of the Biden administration, the moral, tactical, diplomatic, and military support that it has provided Israel over the past few days has been exceptional. David Friedman, Donald Trump's ambassador to Israel, said on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. In Israel, where Trump is popular, Biden's approval rating has shot up. A commentator on Israel's Channel 14, a right-wing outlet that has lacerated Biden since his election, addressed him directly four days after the attack. Forgive us for all that hard things that we said and all that we thought, said the commentator Shai Golden. Thank you, Mr. President. Truly, thank you. Thank you. For those who have long been on Biden's side, his support for Israel comes as little surprise. His diplomatic ties to the country are long-standing, his affection frequently expressed. He gets the DNA of Zionism, David Makovsky, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, who is a staffer in the Obama administration working on Israeli-Palestinian peace. He just gets the idea of Israel. He has said no Jew is safe if there's no Israel, and basically that's what Zionism said, which is that stateless Jews are defenseless. Yet, in a polarized political climate, even Biden's pro-Israel bona fides have been dismissed by many on the right. The pro-Israel community in the United States and Israeli officials disdained the Middle East policy of President Barack Obama, under whom Biden served as vice president. In particular, they felt that Obama's deal with Iran put Israel at risk. Many Republicans have mocked Biden's age and foibles, saying they are evidence of his inability to serve at 80. And even those who might not have quarreled with Biden himself have worried that the Democratic Party is coming under the sway of progressives who are deeply critical of Israel. Biden's actions since October 7th appear to have put all of those concerns to rest. Immediately after the attack, he spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and warned Israel's enemies not to exploit its vulnerability. Two days later, he draped the White House in the blue and white colors of the Israeli flag, saying this is not some distant tragedy. The next day, he addressed the nation, calling the attack pure, unadulterated evil. Biden instructed his Jewish liaisons to brief the Jewish community, including on the measures he was taking to protect American Jews. He personally dropped by a White House briefing for Jewish leaders and said he was doing everything he could to release hostages. He sent his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, on an extended Middle East tour to show support for Israel and garner backing from regional allies. He also ordered two aircraft carriers to the region. My message to any state or any other hostile actor thinking about attacking Israel remains the same as it was a week ago. Don't. 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 Biden said on Wednesday. The comment came during Biden's lightning trip to Israel, where in less than 24 hours he sat in on a government meeting, met with and hugged survivors of the attack, and delivered a searing speech in which he described the stages of Jewish mourning. The visit came amid surging calls for Israel to cease bombing Gaza in its effort to quash Hamas. Seth Mandel, writing in the conservative commentary magazine, praised Biden for resisting those calls from within his own party. Everything in Biden's speech today and his general demeanor suggest he takes the inevitability of a ground incursion for granted and is uninterested in saving Hamas, Mandel said. 
Rejecting widespread criticism of Israel, Biden said upon his arrival in Tel Aviv that he believed Israel claimed uh, claims that an explosion at a Gaza City hospital was the fault of Islamist terrorists. He repeated that insistence during his Oval Office address on Thursday night, a rare step signifying special concern. I am heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at a hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis, he said. In his speech, he said attacks on Israel and Ukraine amounted to an attack on democracy and appealed to Congress for billions in additional defense assistance for Israel. He has absolutely come through in the clutch, as Eidman said. A photo of Biden's face with the massive caption, Thank you, Mr. President, newly graces a billboard overlooking Tel Aviv's Ayalon Highway. Moshe Lyon, the mayor of Jerusalem and a member of the right-wing Likud party, draped Jerusalem monuments with coupled Israeli and U.S. flags and in a statement said the display was to honor Biden's visit, although the president did not come to Jerusalem. From the beginning of the conflict, the president has stood with us firmly, assisting Israel and providing a powerful and meaningful voice against the terrible acts that have occurred in the South and against the threats from our enemies in the North. Lyons said. Israeli troops are exchanging fire with Hezbollah, the Lebanon-based terrorist group that, like Hamas, is backed by Iran. The Israeli satirical show Eretz Nehederet aired a joke similar to the comments that crop up among Israelis on social media. Israelis need a leader, and it is Biden, not Netanyahu. Biden's lightning visit with his vivid, uh, his vivid empathy in his departure speech and his visits with victims and heroes of the October 7th attacks filled a leadership gap in Israel, said Tal Schneider, an Israeli political journalist who is closely watching the 2024 U.S. presidential election. People are in such shock, but they were heartwarmed, and they felt embraced, and many people said to me, this is the first time that we see a leader, because since the war began, they did not hear anything with empathy, she said. The government here, it seems like they don't really care, she said, referring to widespread dissatisfaction with Netanyahu and the perception that in addition to failing to present, prevent the attack, he has been absent since it occurred. People thought that this is our father, you know what I mean? She said of Biden, he came to the rescue with all the American might. The display has rehabilitated Biden's image in the country, according to Amir Tibon, a journalist for the liberal Israeli newspaper Haaretz, whose father rescued his family on October 7th and who was among the Israelis to meet with the U.S. president this week. Most Israelis heard over the last few years derogatory things about Biden due to his advanced age, Tibon wrote in Haaretz. Those who had the honor of meeting him Wednesday afternoon saw his age from another perspective, one of life experience and wisdom. Tuban called Biden the most important Zionist leader in the world. At home, too, the perception of Biden among many of his critics has shifted. In a world that pretends Israel has no right to exist, much less defend itself, Biden has shown tremendous moral courage at a key moment. Despite criticism from his own party, said a statement from Rabbi Avraham Gordimer, the chairman of the rabbinic circle of the Coalition for Jewish Values, a right-wing Orthodox group that has also consistently criticized Democratic Party uh, policies. 
The president's actions since the massacre reflect the American people's steadfast support uh, for the Jewish state and underscore the shared Western values that serve as the foundation for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Shari Dollinger, the co-executive director of Christians United for Israel, a group consistently critical of democratic policies, said in the text message. And a rabbi from the Orthodox community in Woodmere, New York, a redoubt of Jewish Trump supporters, solicited and delivered 18,000 letters of thanks to Biden. Non-Jewish right-wing voices have also been won over by Biden. I think it may be remembered as one of the best, if not the best, speeches of his presidency, Britt Hume, a commentator on Fox News, said after the Oval Office speech. He was as strong as he has been, particularly in recent days, before he went to Israel and while he was over there. Some Republicans remain skeptical, if not hostile. Trump continues to say that he would do better than Biden at protecting Israel, although he alienated Israelis, Israelis by praising Hezbollah and blaming Israel's leadership for the Hamas incursion. Senator, uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, citing differences of policy with the Biden administration over humanitarian funding for the Palestinians and an aid for hostages deal with Iran, accused Biden of helming the most consistently and virulently anti-Israel administration America has ever seen. And even those Jewish conservatives praising Biden in the moment, including Zeidman, Friedman, and Mandel, remain in a watchful wait-and-see mode. Zeidman says he wants Biden to more directly identify Iran as a hostile actor behind the attack. If there's one thing that might have concerned me just a little bit, he has yet to mention Iran, he said. Biden's aides have said that Iran bears some blame to the extent that it funds and trains Hamas, but they have yet to see direct evidence that Iran was involved in the Hamas invasion. Republicans have in the past sought fodder to attack Biden on Israel-related policy. One story that persistently crops up describes his encounter with the late Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. According to the story penned by a Begin confidant, just after the former Prime Minister's death in 1992, a decade after the fact, Biden had yelled at Begin and threatened to cut aid to Israel if Begin did not stop settlement building. Don't threaten us with slash, slashing aid, Begin said in their 1982 meeting in a room in the U.S. Capitol, according to that account. Do you think that because the U.S. lends us money, it is entitled to impose on us what we must do? We are grateful for the assistance we have received, but we are not to be threatened. I am a proud Jew, 3,000 years of culture behind me, and you will not frighten me with threats. Except, according to someone in the meeting, that's not quite how it happened. Biden, who was solidly pro-Israel, asked Begin how he planned to explain controversial Israeli policies. The senator was not criticizing the policies, but Begin, famously prickly, took it as criticism, said Mike Kraft, who at the time was a staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It wasn't a hostile or critical thing, but Begin just kind of let loose on him, Kraft recalled in an interview this week. We're just like pretty neutral question, Kraft said of the people in the room, and Begin fired back. And I remember a couple other staff members who were looking around saying, what's going on? He chuckled at the recollection. The Republican-Jewish coalition over the years deployed the purported Begin encounter against Biden, including in a Facebook post in 2019, just after Biden announced his intention to unseat Donald Trump. 
Yet last week, its CEO, Matt Brooks, was praising Biden to the New York Times, just two weeks before all the major Republican presidential candidates will speak to RJC donors at its annual conference in Las Vegas. This will sound surprising, but by and large, the president has shown tremendous support, unwavering support for Israel at a critical time, Brooks told the Times. Can we quibble on aspects of policy differences over Iran's complicity, for instance? Sure, but by and large, the American people and the international community have seen a president who has stood shoulder to shoulder with Israel. Brooks declined to comment to Ditch ATA, instead referring to his Times interview. And then there's Biden's famous Golda Meir story. When Joe Biden spoke to an Israeli embassy Independence Day bash in 2015, he knew the antidote was old hat. He'd been telling versions of it for 42 years, but he wanted to tell it anyway. I'll conclude, and my friends kid me, and I imagine Ron does it as well, the then-Vice President said, glancing at the then-Israeli Ambassador Ron Dermer. I'll tell you the story about my meeting with Golda Meir. There was knowing laughter on the balmy April evening in the cavernous Andrew Mellon Auditorium across from the National Mall. Jewish media reporters who had for years covered Biden glanced at each other and knocked back a little wine. Biden recalling Golda had become a drinking game. The parameters of the story were familiar. He was a neophyte Delaware senator in the fall of 1973, barely 30 years old. She was the wise and chain-smoking prime minister. He conveyed to her his sense that Israel's enemies were about to launch a war. She seemed pessimistic, too. The Yom Kippur would, uh, war would surprise Israel within days. She asked him if he wanted to pose for a photograph. They stepped outside of her office. She said, Senator, you look worried. He said, I said, well, my God, Madam Prime Minister. And I turned to look at her. I said, the picture you paint. She said, oh, don't worry, we have... I thought she only said this to me. She said, we have a secret weapon in our conflict with the Arabs. You see, we have no place else to go. The 2015 speech was aimed at assuaging tensions between his boss, President Barack Obama, and Dermer's boss, Netanyahu, over the Iran nuclear deal Obama was brokering that year. That tension was what led the coverage of the speech. But buried toward the end of the speech was a prophecy made by a vice president and fulfilled by the same man once he became president. America would bring its military might to bear on Israel's behalf if it came to that. The most admirable thing about you is you've never asked to fight for us. You've never asked us to fight for you, he said in 2015. But I promise you, if you were attacked and overwhelmed, we would fight for you. Biden has repeated the Golda story now 50 years in the telling, more than once since October 7th. And now the quote he attributes to Meyer is emblazoned on a cafe wall in Tel Aviv with his signatures and my heirs. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>